we want you to know that this is a place of healing. Um, and I want to talk about that today. And I want to talk about that by uh, telling you a little story that uh, uh, comes by way of a fellow by the name of Fred Smith Sr. Fred Smith Sr. Not to be confused with Fred Smith of Federal Express, but uh, Fred Smith Sr. Um, godly man, solid Christian, wonderful husband, uh, fantastic father, very, very successful uh, in the business world. Fred Smith Sr. Uh, liked, liked to get in front of churches and Christians and lay this question on him. Fred Smith Sr. would say this, suppose you were caught drunk driving and arrested and, and the headlines of your local church paper had your name plastered on it, so-and-so arrested for drunk driving. What if that were to happen to you, and you were the so-and-so, and, and the newspaper was Sunday morning? Would you go to church that Sunday? That's the question. <laughs> Think about that question for a minute while you silence your cell phones. <laughs> Steve Brown's a pastor, and he's heard Fred Smith ask that question, and Steve Brown just likes it when Fred Smith would ask that question, because he could just feel the congregation wince. And then Fred Smith looked at Steve Brown one time and asked him that question in front of everybody. <laughs> and Steve Brown kind of wins. What would you do? Steve Brown, so-and-so, arrested for drunk driving on Sunday morning paper. Would you go to church that morning? Steve Brown's response was, now, Fred, uh, I mean, I'd have big problem if I were caught driving drunk and my name were splashed on the paper. Fred Smith said, that's not what I asked. I asked, would you go to church that Sunday morning? And uh, Steve Brown answered, he said, no. Uh, I, would, I would take a sabbatical for a month and then try to weasel my way back in if I could. <laughs> and Fred Smith answered him and, and lovingly said, that's stupid. It, it's sort of like a man who's been hit by an automobile and he's got blood all over the place and his bones are broken and they try to take him to the hospital and he says, wait, I'm a mess. Let me go home and get cleaned up. Let me get these bones set. Let me heal, and then I'll go to the hospital. It's a good question. It's a great question. And it's a question that kind of gets people like me thinking about, you know, the kind of place that the church is. And, and so can... I mean, think about it for a minute. If that were to happen, how would people view the local church? Would they view the local church as a, as a courtroom? Or would they view the local church as a hospital? You know, a rehabilitation place. A place where healing can truly occur. See? And let's just not talk about the local church out there. Let's talk about us here in this room. Windsor Road Christian Church, at the, the 1045 crowd. 
Let's think about that. Can this be the kind of place where grace and truth can thrive? Can this be the kind of place where healing can happen? Where when people walk through these doors, they sense that this is a safe place. This is a safe place. This is a place where truth can be heard, and it's a kind of place where truth can be heard in an environment of of Christ-like grace. Can it? These are the questions that surface as I read the last two verses of the New Testament letter of James. And it's those two verses. This is a two-verse sermon today. And I want us to look at the last two verses in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Now, you're going to find that if you take your church Bible on page 856. Why don't you open up, uh, if you have your own Bible or if you want a church Bible, open that and look at that. Um, Now, your church Bibles are the New International Version. And this would be the kind of Sunday where you'd want to look at a couple of different versions. And that's what we're going to do. Um, I want you to see the English Standard Version of James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. There are some words that stand out in this particular uh, translation, this particular version that helps me understand this passage, and I just wanted to share that with you. Ephesians, uh, excuse me, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone from among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Uh, Can we just read those two verses together? Let's back up to verse 19. Let's just focus on the screen and read that together on three. One, two, three. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There it is. The reason why uh, the English Standard Version in this case uh, helps me understand is that there are words that emerge that are repeated in both verses. Um, Similar words, the New Testament comes to us by way of Greek. and So this particular version kind of uh, uh, highlights the words that are repeated. And you, you notice them if you read them. Words like wandering, wanders, wandering, there it is. And then brings him back or brings back. So you've got, you've got a warning here, don't you, that I want us to see as we look at these verses. And, and then there's a calling that surfaces as uh, we continue on through these verses. And then there's, uh, there's just a, a, an encouragement uh, um, by way of God informing us you know, what the stakes are in terms of participating in the ministry of spiritual reclamation. Wandering, bringing back, and the stakes. Uh, what's at stake here? And that's what I want us to see I wonder if James was thinking of himself when these last two verses were written. Because you know James, he was the half-brother of Jesus. And after Jesus' miraculous birth uh, from the Virgin Mary, then then Mary and Joseph had other children, at least six that we know of, uh, four other boys, and at least two sisters. And 
uh, James seems to have been the second oldest, and he didn't believe that his brother was God in the flesh. (laughs) If my older brother told me he was God in the flesh, I'd laugh at him too. And he thought his brother was crazy. He thought his brother was crazy. He's out of his mind. In fact, one uh, verse in the Gospels tells us that, that you know, they had like, it's like, it was like his family had, a, had had enough. And, and then uh, the Scripture puts it, puts it this way. And they went to take charge of him. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to go and take charge of God in the flesh? Good luck. And James, uh, he didn't believe him until the resurrection, a personal visit by his older brother convinced him. And James, the wanderer, was brought back. And he not only, and he, he, he was commissioned to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, it was a thriving church. We know it was a large church. And then it was also a persecuted church, wasn't it? And the Christians had to flee, not only Jerusalem, but Israel, into different communities outside of Israel throughout the Roman Empire and because they were suffering for their faith. And uh, James says to these believers, I mean, they cannot enjoy what we have been enjoying here. They cannot enjoy the community. They're separated in pockets, in little caucuses, in little uh, spiritual communities throughout the empire. And then they get this letter from Pastor James who says, consider pure joy brothers whenever you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance and and pastor james just continues to encourage the people do do not give in to the different trials and struggles and don't give in to materialism don't give in to favoritism don't give in to uh the, the poisonous use of the tongue don't give in to pride it's difficult to maintain your faith during a trial it's very difficult and spiritual fatigue and you just kind of, you just kind of get weakened after a while and, and, and you end up wandering, right? And I think that's where, what's behind uh, verse 19 where God warns us about the dangers of spiritual wandering, wandering from the truth, straying from Christ. And The way James puts it, it's it's a great word picture. James warns against Christians, here it is, planeting from the truth. Planeting from the truth. When the Greeks looked up at the night sky and saw the celestial bodies and the moons, they noticed that it didn't stay fixed. It didn't. That the, that the celestial bodies move, and we find out we're moving, right? 66,600 miles an hour. That's how fast we're going right now. Buckle your seatbelts. And these celestial bodies would, and here's the word, planao or planet across the sky. Drift, wander across the sky. And God is concerned about his people who might plan it from a life of the truth. People, notice James says, from among you. He's not talking about the people out there. He's talking about us here 
in this room, in this place, in this community, those from among you who would plan it from a life of truth, a life of truth. Now, the Greeks like to separate what you thought and what you did and the spirit and the body. The Greeks like to do that, but in the Judeo-Christian heritage, there was total integration. And so we're not, talking about, we're not talking about people who would drift from just a doctrinal understanding of truth or an intellectual understanding of truth, and then their lifestyle would go astray because you and I both know that it's often just the opposite that happens. We determine and make a decision and act on that decision, a particular lifestyle that we want to pursue, and then what happens? We concoct a particular lifestyle and philosophy to match what we're doing or it is as someone once put it what the heart desires the will chooses and the mind justifies planeting wandering straying and then that's usually what happens planet straying drifting christians don't generally jump track they don't I mean, there's a whole lot of little wandering that happens before the big wandering happens. And and often then when the big wandering happens, we wonder, did they jump track? No, they didn't jump track. There there was a lot of little decisions that were made before the big decision was made. And it may appear that they just jumped track, but if if you did a spiritual forensic study, you would see very clearly that there was there was a little little bit of playing. Little bitty decisions were made before the big decision. Uh, An author by the name of Milton Meyer wrote about this after World War II. He he wanted to try to figure out uh, why Nazi Germany, how is it that an entire nation could get itself to the point where they would, you know, kind of just turn a blind eye to the wholesale slaughter of six million people. How does that happen? So, so he did a research project, and he interviewed uh, grassroots Nazis of all professions in a book that was titled, interesting title, They Thought They Were Free. They thought they were free. And this is how, this is how he this is what he determined. He, he, he found out that people who are at letter A, that they're at point A. And if you look over at letter Z, and if letter Z represents something that to you is morally unthinkable in terms of your values and your choices and what, what you, you just, it's un, unconceivable for you to do. People don't jump from point A to, to, to point Z. They just don't. But right next to them is letter B. And so they see what goes on at letter B, and then that they make that move there. Well, they get a little closer then to letter C and D and so on and so forth. And by the time they get to Y, it's nothing for them to get to Z. Planeting. Planeting. Uh, a farmer never sees corn growing minute by minute by minute. That's not how it happens. A corn planets, doesn't it? And if that farmer goes to sleep in the field, goes to sleep in spring, wakes up in September, corn's over his head. Huh? Planets, wanders, 
And so Milton Meyer says, he says, through a series of gradual steps, those who made up the malleable masses ended up over their heads in evil, straying, wandering, planeting. And so Pastor James calls the question. He asks the question of believers 2,000 years ago. He's asking our church this question too, which is this, where are we wandering Could some of us be wandering away from truth into deception? From graciousness into all forms of ungodly anger? Could we be wandering from separation from what we say and how we live? From depending on God to self-sovereignty? Could some of us be wandering from peace and unity to conflict? Wandering from thankfulness to ingratitude? Could some of us be wandering from marriage to sexual fantasies with other people? Wandering from a vibrant, spirited life of faith to a cold, granite-like relationship with God. Wandering into jealousy and envy. Always wishing for something better. A better position, a better job, a cushier life. Instead Instead of saying, God, I thank you. We pray, God, why haven't you given me my blessings? God, when is my ship gonna come in? Wandering into questioning God's love. Wandering into materialism and we have the debt to show for it. Isn't there a way, James asks the question, he calls the question, isn't there a way where all of us can be tempted into wandering, into the very secret recesses and corners of our hearts and minds where nobody else knows, nobody else can tell, nobody else can see, but God sees, God knows, I certainly know, I can certainly see. And doesn't James urge us now, at the very close of this letter, to look into the life-changing mirror of God's word so that I can see myself as I truly am and ask the hard question, where do I find myself comfortably wandering? What do you think? Well, James's warning here becomes a calling, doesn't it, in verse 20? Doesn't it? Whereas God has warned us against the dangers of spiritual wandering, he calls us. This warning becomes a calling because, because verse 20 tells us that God calls this place, Windsor Road, to be a spiritual community of rescuers let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and notice he says whoever whoever it's not just the elder's job it's not just the church staff's job it's not just the deacon's job earlier in james chapter 5 james says are you sick Well, you should call the elders to pray over you and anoint you with oil. Have them pray the prayer of faith over you. Elders can do that, but all of us need to participate in the ministry of spiritual reclamation. All of us. You see, see, life in a local church community assumes responsibility, not just for me to live for the enjoyment of church programs, but to live for the good of others. And, and see, James has already said that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So I have a reason for righteousness now. 
And it's not so that I can get into heaven. It's not so I can earn my way into heaven. No, Jesus took care of all that. And my, the righteousness, the reason for my righteousness is not so that I can, you know, kind of, kind of show off my morality in front of you all and the community at large. That's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. James tells us that the reason for my righteousness, the reason for godly, holy living is so that I might be an equipped, credible rescuer. Listen, we've got Champagne's finest firefighters here in our church. And I asked one of them just last service, I said, how much gear do you got to carry when you go up to the 12th floor to rescue me? 50 or 60 pounds. 50 or 60 pounds. Firefighters, I need you to be in shape when you come and rescue me. Especially when we got to do a fireman's carry. And one of the firefighters said, no, we just tie a rope around your leg and drag you down the stairs, bolting house. <laughs> but you get the point? Of, uh, 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 see, a, a firefighter is righteous when that firefighter is equipped to do the job of rescuing. And that's why God wants us to live a holy life, a godly life, a righteous life. It's not so that we can show off our morality in front of people, but so that we will be credible, credible rescuers. But I'm going to have to take on the responsibility. So do I have a consumer's attitude when it comes to the local church, or do I have a rescuer's attitude? What do I have? What's my mindset here? And see, here's the deal. Pastor James, oh, he had a rescuer's mindset. That's why, that's why church history calls him James the Just. What? Well, let me put it this way. James the Righteous. He was known outside of the Bible for his godly and holy living. In fact, they used to call him camel knees. Camel knees. Knees of a camel are calloused and sagging. James's knees were calloused and sagging from his prayer life. He walked it. Pastor James walked the talk. And, uh, and we need to ask ourselves, am I going to be a part of God's ongoing ministry of reconciliation? Because you see, and I, I was thinking about this passage, and at first I was thinking that this passage tells us that there's two kinds of people in our local church. Huh? There's wanderers, And then there's rescuers, okay? I mean, if you look at verse 19 and 20. But I think there's there's a better way to say it. Not just wanderers and rescuers. Here it is. There are wanderers, and then there are redeemed wanderers who have been given the gift of the ministry of spiritual reclamation. That's it. Oh, God gives us the gift, the gift of going out and bringing people to his very face. And he said, well, what would that look like if I participated in the gift of that ministry? You know what? It would look like this. It would look like uh, perhaps you going alongside of someone in your life that you love and, uh, and saying just this. You sense that they are planeting 
you come alongside them just between the two of you. You say, you know, I've been noticing something that's going on with you and I want to talk about it. And I have to tell you I have a pit in my stomach, but I need to say this. You might, you might put it that way. Or you might say, you know, I, I'm seeing a pattern here. I could be wrong, but I'm seeing a pattern here in your life. It appears to me that this is what's happening. Am I off base? Tell me I'm off base. Sometimes that kind of gentle probing, it needs firmer probing. Like, I think you're caught. I think you're tangled. I think you're addicted. I think you're headed in some dangerous waters. I'm not talking about anger-driven words. I'm talking about grief-driven and concern-driven words. I hope you're hearing that. And yes, there's a risk. Of course there's a risk. There's always a risk. There's the risk of rejection. There's the risk of retaliation. There's the risk of blame-shifting. There's the risk of being misunderstood. And at the very least, there's the awkwardness of all of it. It's just awkward. The risk that it could go bad. The risk that they'll be mad at you. And the risk that, oh my goodness, they might unfriend you. But James closes his letter by saying, look, the stakes are high. See, the the warning has become a calling, and now James encourages and informs us, God informs us that the stakes are nothing less than eternal life and death. That's why he says, save his soul from death and we'll cover a multitude of sins. See, we're not just talking about bringing someone back to the church roll. We're not, we're not talking about whether we add you back into the, the attendance roster on the computer. That, that's not what we're talking about here, church family. The fact of the matter is we're, we are an organism as a community, and an orga- a living thing is either moving toward life or toward death, and It's one or the other. We're either moving toward a life of submission and hope and encouragement or we are moving into separation and death. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Why is it that we wander so easily? And perhaps the reason is that we tell ourselves that it's something less than spiritual life or death. We deceive ourselves. We say things like, well, this won't hurt anyone, or I'll only do it once, or I haven't had any for a week, or I'll be careful, or I can handle it, or I can quit whenever I want. And isn't that what, isn't that lie, isn't that what was presented to our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when Satan came to them and Satan pointed to death and called it life? And they bought it. And when we buy the lie from the deceiver, the liar, when we buy the deception from the deceiver that death is really life, it's over with. And it's over with for us. Especially when we consider the truth that there is only one person, there's only one person who can go to death and transform it into life. And it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus And the reason why is because he never wandered. 
he stayed truly focused on what it is his father willed him to do, even to the point of death. Consider it pure joy, James says. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. He suffered even to the point of death for you and for me so that we, having been redeemed and restored, could then receive the ministry and be his body and participate in the loving, caring ministry of spiritual reclamation. And and so the stakes are high. warning and the calling and the encouraging. We're either wanderers or we're redeemed wanderers. Who are you? Who are you today? Are you a wanderer? Planeting, drifting, straying? Are you a redeemed wanderer who's answering the call to lovingly bring back people, not, not to the church roles, but to the, but to the only one who can cleanse and forgive, Jesus Christ. Are you, are you Maria or are you Christina? Hmm? Maria or Christina? Maria Maria and Christina lived in a dusty village somewhere in Brazil. And Maria, the mother, Christina, the daughter. Um, Maria's husband died when Christina was an infant. And Maria was determined that she was going to take care of her precious daughter. And she got a job and and worked a very humble job. They had a one-room house. Her pallet was on one side of the room and um, Christina's pallet was on the other side, and there was a wooden stove, and uh, the gray walls were colored as best as they could with a picture or a crucifix. And, uh, and 15 years later, the worst was over, and uh, Maria had brought this sweet little girl uh, into young womanhood, And now Christina was old enough that she could work and that maybe she could someday have her own family. And uh, Maria was just so happy about that. But the last thing that Christina wanted to do was to assume a traditional role of a family. Uh, Not that she couldn't. She was just absolutely stunning and beautiful. Beautiful olive brown skin. She had a charisma about her when she threw her head back in laughter. There's just electricity filled the room and a steady stream of suitors would have loved to have taken her hand in marriage. But she just didn't want any of that. She wanted to leave the dusty streets of that village for the street life, for the night life of Rio de Janeiro. And, and this, that very thought just horrified Maria because, I mean, she, she said to her daughter, what, what, 
what would you do there? What, what, there, there there's no one you know there. How, how would you? She knew what she would do there if she went there or what she would have to do there if she went there. And that's why Maria was horrified the morning she awoke and she saw Christina's pallet empty. Her daughter was gone. She knew where she had gone. And Maria knew what she must do. She quickly gathered up a bag, clothes into the bag. She scooped up all the money she had. She went to buy a round-trip bus ticket, but before she stepped on that bus, she went to the drugstore to sit in one of those photo booths, and she just had picture after picture after picture of herself taken. She got into the bus, and she went to the city. Now, she knew that Christina was not going to be able to take care of herself. And she also knew that her daughter was very stubborn and had a spirit of pride in her. But here's the deal, and some of you know this. When a spirit of pride steps into the ring with the stomach of starvation, eventually starvation wins out. And people will do the unthinkable in order to get a loaf of bread. And that's why uh, Maria went to every bar every hotel, um, every nightclub, every place known for prostitution and streetwalkers. And at each of those places, she took the picture of herself and, and she distributed it. She, she would tape it on the, wind, uh, on the mirror of a bathroom. Uh, she would put it at a phone booth. She would, uh, she would put it at the hotel bulletin board. And when she had exhausted all of her pictures and pretty much all of her money, She got back on the bus, weary, tired, tear-filled, and she went back to that little village, and she just prayed. And several weeks passed. I mean, several weeks passed. And Christina came down the steps of a hotel, and she descended the steps, and, you know, she didn't look like she did before she left. She was gaunt. Her eyes were dark. Her spirit was broken. Uh, The laugh was gone. Uh, She was lost. And she gets to the bottom of the steps. And she looks up and she saw a familiar face. Across the foyer, at the corner of the lobby mirror, was a black and white picture of her mother. And her eyes began to burn and her throat began to tighten and she missed home so much but in so many ways home was so far away. She walked over to those eyes of love and she took the picture and on the back of the picture was this compelling invitation Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Please come home.